Welcome to Heart of Worship Church Podcast. For more podcasts, sermon videos, daily devotions, great new worship music, and more, be sure to download our app by searching Heart of Worship Church in the App Store or Google Play, or visit us online at heartofworshipchurch.com. But the word that I have for y'all today, it actually ties into Daddy's message last week. It's, it's kind of a part two to it that expounds upon it. The message is titled Last Days. But I think that if we can get through this and comprehend what the Lord is saying, that after today you're going to feel a lot nearer to both the return of Christ and the crucifixion. God is about to change a lot of your perspectives in this word. The devil likes to stretch out time and make it feel so grand that you can't possibly have any place in it or affect it. But when you look at the scope and the reality of what's really happening in the scripture, it's really a very small story, and everybody has a place in it. Today's message is also a commission to evangelism and intercession. So if you've been getting that push, then here's your confirmation. And I know some have because some have been sharing it with me, and I'm like... Yep, it's coming. But in order to truly understand the last days, you have to first understand the relationship between righteousness and wrath. You see, if we remember the story about Abraham, I'm going to hit a couple of different scriptures here. Some of them I'm just going to quote to you and tell you because we don't have time to hit them all. Some will pull up on the screen. But in the story of Abraham, God had come and told Abraham that judgment was coming on Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham's nephew Lot lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. In the New Testament, it says Lot was a righteous man. Abraham interceded for Lot and said, Lord, surely you won't destroy the righteous with the wicked. What if there's 50 righteous men in Sodom and Gomorrah? Will you destroy it or will you save it for their sake? And God said, no, I will not destroy it. I will not treat the righteous the way I treat the wicked. And so then he said, well, what about if there's 30? He said, well, no, I wouldn't destroy it. I would save it for the sake of the 30. He said, but there's not 30. He said, well, what if there's 20? I wouldn't destroy it for 20, but there's not 20. What about 10? I would save it for just 10. But he didn't go any lower than 10. And there's a reason for this. There's a biblical principle. God will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. The Bible said it is not appointed unto the righteous for wrath. First of all, what does it take to be righteous? Righteous means to be in right standing. In other words, I am doing what God says is right. Not what I think is right, not what I want to be right, but what God says is right. When I do what God says is right, there is a seal of protection that is placed because he will not allow wrath to fall upon the righteous. So when there's enough righteous, it will preserve the land, like salt preserves the meat. This is why Jesus said that you are the salt of the earth. If you can sprinkle out enough righteous people in an area, it will protect, it will preserve the land from wrath. Because there are laws set in motion that God said wickedness must be judged, but yet the rule that he will not allow that wrath to fall upon the righteous overrules the judgment of the wicked. The problem with Sodom and Gomorrah is that this biblical principle states that if there's one righteous man in a thousand, God will preserve the land. But if the ratio gets lower than that, God will not preserve the land, but he will save the righteous man out of the land. Like Noah, 
Noah was the last righteous man on the whole earth, him and his family. That was not enough to justify saving the rest, so he saved him out of it. We have to understand this relationship between righteousness and wrath to truly understand what the last days are and our place in it. We understand that throughout the Bible, through the Old Testament, we read about all these righteous men and all of these things that go upon the righteous. So we know there were righteous men in the Bible, right? Noah was a righteous man. It says he saved Noah, the preacher of righteousness. The eighth man, it says Elijah was righteous. The effectual fervent prayers of a righteous man availeth much. Uh, Job was a righteous man. In fact, it says he was perfect. There was righteous people throughout all the Old Testament. He talked a lot about it. I've never seen the righteous forsaken or begging for bread. He will hear the cry of the righteous. So the Bible is full of righteous men and women. But then we get to the time of Jesus and we read things like, there are no righteous, for all have gone astray like sheep. And we say, well, if there's no righteous, why does the Bible say all of these righteous? No, no. It's saying in the time of Jesus, there were no more righteous men. The people were not doing what God said was right. There were righteous before. But when that time came, there wasn't any salt left. So what does that mean? With no more salt to preserve the earth from judgment, judgment was decreed. That's why Jesus came, to bring revival and stay the time and give us a little bit more. The Bible says that all have gone astray like sheep and that none were righteous. So when Jesus came, it was just like it was again in the days of Noah. There weren't any righteous left. It also says in the Bible that so shall it be again when Jesus returns. It's going to be just like it was in the day of, of Noah. So when there's not that many righteous left, not enough to preserve the land and justify God protecting it, then he will come take the few righteous out of it, that's the rapture, and then bring judgment upon it. Tribulation and wrath are not the same thing. Tribulation comes upon the church. That's when the enemy attacks the church. We all go through tribulations. In this life, there will be tribulations. But the wrath of God comes after when they are removed and then wrath falls upon the wicked. <coughs> on the sons of disobedience. Pull up Luke chapter 17, verse 26. In Luke chapter 17, verse 26, it says, And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat and drink and were married to wives they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came. So when Noah was removed from the earth, then wrath fell on it because Noah was righteous and wrath can't fall upon the righteous. And it destroyed all of them. Likewise, also, it was in the days of Lot. They did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But in the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, when Lot was removed, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So we understand by Scripture that the rapture comes according to Scripture immediately after tribulation. All that passes and then the righteous are removed. And immediately when the righteous are removed, the wrath of God is poured out. He waits to remove the righteous. In that day, he which shall be upon the housetop 
uh, and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. Remember Lot's wife. Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it, like the salt. Preserve it. I tell you that in that night there shall be two men in one bed, because at that time there was usually only one place the whole family slept together, usually on the floor in the living room. So they'll all be sleeping together. And one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women shall be grinding together and one shall be taken and the other left. Two men shall be in the field and one shall be taken and the other shall be left. This is a warning. Why is one taken and one left? Because one is righteous and one is not. Righteousness is your ticket on the ark. It's the only thing that will protect you from wrath, from judgment. I don't care what anybody teaches or preaches. If you're not doing what God says is right, then you are not counted among the righteous and you will be counted among those who receive the wrath. I'm laying a little foundation and I'm going to get somewhere so that you can see the scope of why God commissioned us and what our purpose is in our present time. Jesus was the first fruit, an example to give us faith that the rest of it was coming in its season. Jesus came and walked out a life of righteousness. He was persecuted for it. He died and he was resurrected. That was to give us faith that if we live a life of righteousness, walk it out, even if we die for it, we will be resurrected. It was proof because in the time uh, of the Israelites, they had a custom called first fruits. Whenever their harvest started to come in, whatever was harvested first, they gave it to God in faith saying that, I believe that you're going to print a bigger harvest and I'm giving you this in faith because I'm not going to try to live off of this. I'm going to trust you that the rest is coming. We had to let go. Jesus was given back to the Father in faith and trust that a bigger harvest was coming. We are the final harvest. In Lot's time, there were righteous. In Noah's time, there were righteous people. In the last days, there are still going to be some righteous people. But in Jesus' time, it says there were no righteous Therefore, Jesus had to come specifically to stop the judgment. It means that the judgment had already been given. Pull up Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Jesus came to intercede on our behalf because if he, if he would not have done what he did, the end time, the final judgment would have come 2,000 years ago. And that's why scripturally the last days began with Jesus. There was a prophecy given in Malachi that said, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Judgment had come because there was no more salt preserving the land from judgment. There were no more righteous. But God wanted to buy more time, so Jesus came and paid for it with his life. He took our cup and gave us his righteousness. He made a way for the Gentiles to receive righteousness so he could make more salt and buy more time. See, Jesus didn't even know because it says that some things were given only to the Father to know. He didn't know how many people would really accept him and how long this would stretch out. He knew he was giving his life to stop the judgment and to buy a little more time, but he didn't know how much time. That's why he said, I don't even know the time when I'm coming back. Only the Father knows that. Jesus taught every, hey, 
Live like the, like the end is now. Live like this is the last day, like I can come tomorrow. Because he knew that it was already that time. And if the righteousness wasn't spread, then it would be very sharp before he'd be returning. That's why Paul, once it began to spread and you began to see the church spreading and righteousness spreading, Paul came and clarified and he said, hold on, we're still growing. The salt is still spreading. It's not coming right now, but it will come once you start to see a falling away. When there's a falling away, there's not enough salt. There's no righteousness. Then it reenacts. It begins to put back into motion what already started. Every day, the church is buying a little more time if they're doing their job, if they're preaching righteousness. I need to explain something to you really quick. Uh, I can't go into full detail, but if you go to the podcast and look up a recent message that I did called The Fifth Cup, you'll understand this a little bit better. But i got to take you a little bit into some Jewish culture so you can really understand what's happening here. In the Jewish culture, there was uh, a Passover. It was a, They call it a Seder. Sometimes they still perform it today. And through the process of this Passover, they recite four different blessings that were given to the Israelites as a covenant, as a promise from God. And as they recite the blessing, they drink from the cup because the cup is a sign of covenant. This is a, this is a law, a deal that God made, and he will keep it. Amen. Now there's a fifth cup. There's only four cups drunk, but there was a fifth cup. Go ahead and pull up Jeremiah 25, verse 15. The, the rabbis began to debate on whether or not they would include this fifth cup because it's not a very pleasant cup. It's not a blessing or a promise. Well, it is a promise, but it's not something good. And so they couldn't decide what to do with this cup, and you'll see why, because they didn't want to, at the end of remembering all of these mighty deliverances and blessings, they didn't want to end it with this fifth cup. And this is why, because this is the fifth cup. It says, For thus saith the Lord God of Israel unto me, Take the wine cup of this fury at my hand, and cause all nations to whom I send thee to drink it, and they shall drink it, and be moved, and be mad, because of the word that I will send among them. Jeremiah 25, 15. Basically, this is a promise. It's one of the cups. And so they said, we don't want to really talk about this. We don't know what to do with this. But we do know that Elijah's going to come before this day of judgment. So we're not going to include it in the Passover. We'll just do what they called, originally they called it Elijah's cup. Now they just do it at the end of the Seder. They have a child go and open the door and see if Elijah's coming. And if he's coming, then Elijah's supposed to tell him what to do. And if he's not coming, well, then it's not the end and they keep waiting. So they're waiting for Elijah, called Elijah's cup, but it's a cup of wrath. Jesus said, when they asked him, they said, well, if you're the Messiah, then where's Elijah? Because he's supposed to come before the judgment. And Jesus said very plainly, without any interpretation, he has come, it's John the Baptist. He told them what to do. He said, repent, repent, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Judgment has come, it's already here. Your only way of escape is to believe in Jesus for salvation. So this cup is the cup that Jesus was praying about in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was crying out, Lord. Remember, he was in Gethsemane during Passover. All of the Passover cups were blessings. Why is he praying, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me? It was the cup of wrath that he knew he was going to drink on our behalf because he was the only righteous man 
left. He traded our cup of wrath for his communion cup. Because in the communion, the communion, the process of communion was also a Jewish engagement ceremony. So what he did, he took the church in, the disciples representing the church, and he said, I will become engaged to you. When they drank of that communion cup, it was a covenant. When we drink of communion, even today, we are saying, I choose to be engaged to Christ, to do what he says is right, to walk in righteousness, to be his bride, and to be a faithful one. And in doing so, he becomes our bridegroom, which is what? A covering. He then stands in front of us and takes our cup of wrath. He covered us. And then his dying, he, because he had betrothed us, he imparted to us through his last will and testament everything that he had, all of his righteousness, all of his power, authority, and dominion, his mission, his ministry, everything was given to the bride. Because when he died, we were then able to cash in that will, that testament, the New Testament. When you read the New Testament of the Bible, you are reading everything that you inherited because he bought us a little more time. The judgment had already come. He took the cup. He took our sins and gave us his righteousness. And then he left us to continue doing it, to be the salt that preserves, to keep pushing back the judgment. Open Romans 9.29. This is Paul telling the Romans, and he says, and as Elias said before, except the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a seed. Remember, the scripture says that Jesus himself was the seed. We had been as Sodom and been made like unto Gomorrah. So Paul was explaining to them, if Jesus had not come, with that seed of righteousness that we are now able to partake of and continue to spread that righteousness, the whole world would have been destroyed, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, which if you read in the end when the falling away comes, right before the return of Christ, when the judgment comes, that's what happens to the whole earth, fire and brimstone and and hell on earth. Literally what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah will happen to the world. That is the final Judgment And the only way of escape from it is to walk in righteousness that Jesus affords us by doing what he says is right. Now, the Gentiles didn't have the ability to do that because they were led of evil spirits. They didn't have God's spirit. But because of Jesus' atonement that comes and washes us clean of our sin, our temple can now take in the Holy Spirit and be led by it. The Holy Spirit is a spirit of holiness and righteousness. So if we're doing what it's telling us to do and being led by it, we are walking in holiness and righteousness. That's why the Bible says that as many as are led by my spirit, they are the sons of God. Not just people who claim me. Jesus said, many will say, you're you're my Lord. And I'll say, depart from me. I don't even know who you are. You're still working iniquity. Not those who cry unto me, Lord, Lord, will get into heaven, but those who do the will of the Father. What is the will of the Father? That is righteousness. To do what he says is right. Now, only because of the blood of Jesus do we even have the ability to receive his spirit, which then empowers us to walk in that. So you can't do it in your own flesh. You've got to cry out to Jesus, come and save me, feel me, lead me, empower me. But he will. That was the whole purpose in his coming. If you're not walking in righteousness, you're not truly saved and you're not saving anybody else. But if you are, remember that just like the sins of one can affect everyone around them, so can the righteousness of one affect everyone around them, even the land. It preserves. That's what salt does. 
Go to Acts chapter 2, verse 15. This was right after the ascension of Christ. This is the beginning of the church. This was when the Holy Spirit was first given and it was poured out. And they began to manifest the gifts. And they had accused them of being drunk. Paul says, For these are not drunk, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now this happened immediately after the resurrection of Jesus. And he's saying already, it's the last days. Biblically, when Jesus came, it was already the last days because every day we got after that was mercy. Every day we got after that was just tarrying and extending the time. The last days were already started. So when, from the moment that Jesus came until the time he comes again, it's all the last days. You are already in the last days. And you're not promised a huge expanse of time before it comes to its fruition. In fact, at any point that the righteousness of the church falls away, then you're right there because we're already there. We're just staying it one more day. One more. This is why Jesus said, always be ready. Always be ready. This also does away with the, the teaching. Some teach that the gifts and callings have passed away and they're not for today. That just shows an absolute lack of understanding of the scripture. The gifts were given in the last day. It was poured out with his spirit for the purpose of continuing this mission. Yes. For as long as we are willing to continue walking in that commission until Christ returns and we give it back to him. Amen. Because he came to be our example, to walk in righteousness and to help lead others to it so that we could walk in that righteousness and continue to spread the truth that the, the land might be preserved, that judgment might be stayed a little bit longer. The gifts are part of that because the gifts are there given to be a witness that Jesus is the way to righteousness. He is the way to attain it, that he is the son of God and this is the truth. So when he gives those gifts, it's to empower us to continue in this mission. It says that when he which is perfect returns, then those gifts will be finished because there won't be a need to prophesy when Jesus is standing right there. There won't be a need for gifts of healings when the healer is there. Amen. We give ourselves as a temple for the Holy Spirit to come and minister through, and that's what those gifts are. They're a manifestation of that. And if they're not pointing to the truth of Jesus and who he is and bringing others into righteousness, it's not the Holy Spirit. Right. It's a counterfeit. So the truth of the matter is, is that revival brings reprieve and a little more time. Nineveh was faced with judgment and it was given a reprieve. It was given a little more time because a preacher of righteousness came and they came into alignment with what God said. They had revival and they got a reprieve. When you have revival, all revival is is biblical Christianity. It's spreading the gospel, spreading the salt, spreading the righteousness, spreading that which preserves the land. When you don't have revival, what you have is a falling away. And what we have right now today is a falling away. 
They mentioned it last Sunday how statistically every generation there has been a 10% decline in church attendance. We are now down to 10% of what it once was, which means this is the last generation for America before there's just no more Christianity left in the nation. There's not a lot of salt left in America. That's why you're beginning to see the glimpses of judgment coming on America. It can be stayed with revival and evangelism if the church truly believes in their commission and what they're called to do and go out and do it. Fighting it in the flesh is not going to work. Fighting it in politics is not going to work. Fighting it in the military is not going to work. The only thing that's going to stay judgment is evangelism, is revival, is spreading righteousness. So pick up your cross and follow after me. He made the example. Shine the light, push back the darkness. Be righteousness and preach righteousness. Do what God says is right. You protect you and your household. Even if all the world turns against it, if you choose to walk in righteousness, you put a protection on you and your household because Noah was saved and his household. When the righteous become too few to preserve the land, God will rescue the few remaining righteous out of it and send wrath upon it. So in this do we see that the Antichrist actually brings the wrath of God upon himself by trying to exterminate the Christians whose presence was actually protecting even him and his wicked followers from judgment. The devil always hangs himself. Haman always hangs on the gallows that he built for Mordecai. So why are we still here? We're trying to preserve the earth against judgment, even while being persecuted for it. The same reason Jesus came to be our example. That's the only reason that as Christians we are still here. God could have ended it 2,000 years ago. The only reason the church exists and Christians are here today is to spread the truth and righteousness, even if people hate you and persecute you and kill you for it. Jesus gave us the example. The whole purpose is to actually give the wicked space for repentance. So don't give up the mission. Because the people you want to save the least are going to be the ones you're here for the most. Pull up 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness. Now, he said he was coming back. He said it wouldn't be long. But the Bible says he's not slack concerning his promises. But he is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burnt up, seeing then that all these things shall come to pass uh, and be dissolved. What manner of person ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for the hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and new earths, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look forward for such things, be diligent, that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot, and blameless. No man knows the day or the hour 
because it's really not set in stone. It depends on rather the church is building the kingdom or falling away from it. There are a few things biblically that will be fulfilled before the return of Christ. And I think that a lot of these teaching give people a false sense of distance, thinking that, okay, well, these things are so far away because these things haven't happened yet. The Bible says that the, the message, this gospel, this truth has to be preached in all the world. It's preached in all the world. In this technological age, in this day, there are missionaries who were so excited to go into these deep, dark places that gave, went out there and they said, you know what, they've not met the truth of Jesus. They don't know anything. I'm going to go and save them. And they came back with a testimony that said they knew more than we did. They just didn't want him. The gospel is preached. Daddy says it all the time. If this little church in the middle of nowhere is reaching the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands all over the world through media, that prophecy is fulfilled. It says that there must be a falling away first. That is happening now. It is fast approaching. It says that before the end, Israel must be saved and brought back into the family. That's happening now. There's huge revival going on in Israel, but I believe that won't fully happen until during tribulation. It's my belief that really when the two witnesses show up and start demonstrating everything that they saw their prophets in the Old Testament do and testifying that it's by Jesus, I think that's really one of the things that's going to truly turn that nation. And the thing that people think of so far away, well, we've got all this time, but let me tell you, biblically tribulation, the true tribulation in Scripture only takes three and a half years. From the time that the Antichrist is revealed until the return of Christ is only a three and a half year time period. So at any point, you can say that we are only three and a half years away from the return of Christ. So everything that the Bible says has to happen that hasn't happened yet takes place in a three and a half year period. So why do we think it's like a thousand years away? It can start at any moment. And once it starts, you've got three and a half years. That's why he says count the days from the time that the sacrifice is taken away. So it's not far, far away. It happens when people stop preaching righteousness. So maintain your righteousness at all costs, even if it costs you your life. Now, Daddy's sermon was right, and I've been getting it nonstop. Persecution is coming. The devil will try to provoke you to abandon your righteousness with flattery, with prosperity, and eventually with misery. Remember Job. Don't fall for it. Don't abandon your righteousness for either ease or offense. Because that's the Antichrist spirit's two main weapons. He will promise you ease. If you will take this mark, then it's going to be easy for you. You're part of the system. You'll get your check. You'll get your mammon. You'll get your medicine. You'll get everything you need, but you have to be locked into the system. He'll make it easy. He'll win you with flattery. Those that refuse, he's going to try to win with misery. Because if he can get you in offense or bitterness or hatred, you've lost your righteousness. And it doesn't matter what you're professing, you still won't escape the judgment. It's all about maintaining the righteousness so that the land can be preserved and maybe one more can be reached. It says in the book of Daniel that some he corrupted with flattery and some he corrupted by killing them so that others could see and fear. It's all meant to get you to forfeit your righteousness, so don't do it. Remember, God saved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, but he brought wrath upon the land of the ungodly. The devil will do everything he can to steal your righteousness so that you have to face wrath with him. 
in the end. He's already been judged. Daddy had did that sermon a while back about the enemy has already been judged. His judgment's given. Ours is still pending because we have been given a pardon from it if we take it. The devil, he wants to steal your righteousness because he wants you to be judged with him. The Bible says very clearly and plainly over and over and over that only the righteous will inherit the kingdom of heaven. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So guard your righteousness. And if you really look at it for what it is, this is what the the devil attacks. Every attack that comes against you, it's meant to get you out of right standing. It's to get you to mouth off. It's to get you to get offended. It's to get you tempted. It's to get you in rebellion. Whatever he does, it's to get you to lose your righteousness. It's to get you in fornication. It's to get you to do anything that God said not to do. And it's not about control. God knows what is good. He sees the end from the beginning. And what he tells you is for your own good. It's out of love and compassion and protection. So anything he told us to do, it's good for us. But the enemy, he likes to sell you. What the Bible says that sin is pleasurable for a season, but after that it brings death. Jesus said things are going to be hard for you for a season, but afterwards it brings eternal life. The devil tries to keep you looking at the right here and right now and not thinking about eternity. God keeps telling you, don't worry about the right here, right now. Keep looking at eternity. What's more important? Right here and right now is temporary. In fact, we're we're walking on borrowed time. So prepare for eternity because it's coming. Righteousness is our fruits. Jesus said that you know the tree by the fruit, not those who claim to be mine or mine. There are many wolves in sheep's clothing but you will know them by their fruits. And then we read in the Bible that tells us what the fruits are. It says that they're love, joy, peace, faith, kindness, all these things that are manifestations of holiness and righteousness. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 12, Paul said that they are the fruits of righteousness. It says that even when God chastises us, he's doing it out of love like a loving father so that we can produce the peaceable fruits of righteousness So we have to keep producing those fruits no matter what comes against us. The Bible talks about in the last days these great hordes of demonic locusts that will be released onto the earth. What do locusts do? They come to attack the fruitfulness of the tree. They come to eat up the fruit. They make the tree where it cannot produce good fruit. A tree that has been so attacked by bugs will actually produce bitter fruit. The enemy is going to send persecution to eat up your fruit and make you bitter. He's stealing your righteousness. Remember that God said, only those who are led of my spirit are my sons. Jesus said that to know whether or not they have the spirit, they have to be producing the fruits of the spirit. The fruits of the spirit are righteousness. If you're not producing the righteousness, he's already one. And this comes every day in little things when the devil gets that anger built up in you, when he causes you to say those things or to gossip or to slander. Even in those little areas, anything he can do. This is why we are ever to be in prayer, Jesus said, if you abide, because he'll continue to teach you and poke you and prod you and say, hey, look, that was an attack. That was a locust. He's eating up your fruit. You better fix that. In which place we do what Peter did when he started to sink. We come back and we cry out, Jesus, I acknowledge this as sin. I recognize this. Forgive me of it. Take it away. Prune that branch. Don't let that disease spread. Cut it off.
So don't let the locusts eat up your fruit. It will cut off your fruitfulness. Maintain your righteousness like Job did at all costs. Job maintained his righteousness even when everybody came against him and persecuted him because he had his mind set on the resurrection. He said that if my finger were but a pen, I would inscribe in stone that my Redeemer lives because I know that I will stand before him on the final day and I will see him with my own eyes. He believed for the resurrection so he wouldn't allow the enemy to cut off his fruitfulness no matter what came against him. He went through real tribulation. But if he was looking at the here and now, he would have given up on God, but he kept his eyes on the resurrection. Jesus said we cannot have any unforgiveness in our heart, so we have to pray for those who persecute us, those who come against us. This is why Job didn't come out of his trial until he prayed for his friends, the ones who were persecuting him. This is why Jesus did not die. He did not let the sun go down upon his wrath until he had prayed for the persecutors. On the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The Bible says that we're all going to get angry at times. He says, get angry and sin not. Do not let the sun go down upon your wrath or you give place to the devil. This is why Jesus said, pray for those who persecute you. Immediately, pray for their good. Don't let it grow roots in you. Release it and then it's not sin. Give it up. And I give you this because as persecution increases, this is where the enemy is going to begin to plant bitterness and offense and all of these things in the hearts of Christians. You're going to see polarization. You're going to see militarization of the church, just like the zealots in the time of Jesus. They were trying to bring about good ends by physical means, and they became militia that began to fight against the Roman occupation instead of crying out to Jesus and trying to save those who were in the midst of them. And there's so many times when the enemy is rushing in like a flood and we look at it as an attack and start to fight back, look at it as evangelism. You don't have to go very far to find someone to save. Start spreading the fire. Remember, you need more salt or it's over. If you lose your savor, If the salt loses its savor, what good is it? It's not even worth throwing into the dunghill, which is where the enemy goes in the end. The church will be destroyed with the wicked if it stops shining the light, preaching righteousness, and maintaining the fruits of it in the midst of it. We want to be the tree that is planted by the water, whose roots go down so deep that they produce good fruit when hard times come. There's an analogy given in the Bible. The water represents the Holy Spirit. Spending that time in prayer where your roots go down deep, you have that abiding presence with Jesus where you're continually producing fruit even when the hard times come, even when the tribulation comes, even when the persecution comes. You can be the people that you read about in the books of martyr or the books of the Bible because they all went through it too. You keep producing that fruit, but the only way it's going to happen is if you maintain your roots in the Word of God and in the presence of God so that He can continually correct you and produce those good fruits in you. Abiding and drawing from the river of God's Holy Spirit and not trusting in the arm of the flesh or acting in offense. Remember the mission is to save the wicked, not to become part of them. It's a test. The Bible says that when Jesus comes, will he find faith on the earth? If we're not still doing what he said, then we're not walking in righteousness and we've lost our faith in him. We have to have faith in what he said. 
And tribulation is the hardest time to do that. But you have to. The Bible says, Cursed is the man who trusts in the arm of the flesh. When hard times come, he will make his own way by the works of his own hands, and his branches will dry up, and he will have no fruit. It will never work out for you. Go to Hebrews 12, verse 14. It says, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up, troubling you, and thereby many be defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. It says, be diligent unless the grace of God fail you. Grace is power. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the power that's been given for us to produce those good fruits of righteousness and maintain it. He's saying, be careful because if you don't guard it, you will lose it. And bitterness will come up in its place. And when bitterness comes up in you, it doesn't just defile you. It defiles everybody around you because it starts coming out of your mouth and planting seeds and everybody else. It can happen in little things like church gossip. It can happen in big things like national division. It starts by the same thing. Be careful that it doesn't take root in you and that it doesn't spread forth from you. It matters not if they are at peace with you. It matters if you are at peace with them. He said, maintain peace and holiness because without it, you will not see the Lord. In this world, there will be troubles. They won't all like you. They won't all be at peace with you, but you must maintain your peace with them. Peace is one of the fruits of the Spirit. If you let bitterness take root in you, it will damn you, and not only you, but many others through you. And you will forfeit your inheritance because you trade your righteousness for bitterness. Offense is the revival killer. The Holy Spirit will withdraw from anyone who harbors it. Pull up Romans 12, verse 19. Every revival in history was ended by offense. If our purpose, if the goal of revival is to save the wicked and you let offense come in against them, you're already defeated. You're not going to have a heart for them. You're going to give up. The Holy Spirit can't move through you. Jesus said, what good is it if you only go and help those who like you? The goal is to help those who hate and despise you. That's the ones that really need it. And you'll find that when those are reached, those are the ones that become the most powerful in the kingdom. Because to whom much is forgiven, they are willing to pour out they know that they need to share this with others. Romans 12, 19 says, Dearly beloved, avenge not thyself, but rather give place unto wrath. God will avenge. Give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him a drink. For in doing so, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, we think of this because like when you do something good for somebody who's attacking you, and it says you'll heap coals of fire on his head, and we think, oh, it's going to make them mad. doesn't usually make them mad. They're like, oh, I'm getting over on them all the more. It's talking about the judgment. Because the more good you do to them, and the more they work against you, it's heaping more wrath and judgment upon them. In the end, you will be avenged. Let God do the avenging, not you. You keep praying. Go to Revelations 13, 11. We're almost done. In fact, this is our last passage. 
Revelations, no, I'm sorry, Revelations 3.11. I give this as a warning because I've been getting it nonstop, and Daddy preached it last Sunday that persecution is coming, but there's a tactic of the enemy in the midst of it, and Daddy said it was the church's fault. It is the church's fault because they stopped evangelizing, because they stopped bringing revival. They stopped having faith, and they started having a social club and a party and a bless me club, and I'm just going to do what I want and have fun with my friends. I'm not going to worry about those in sin. They're too wicked. They're not welcomed here. But in doing it, they were letting the salt run out. It says, Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. We read it in Sunday school this morning. What was that? A crown of righteousness. Let no man take your crown. Of righteousness. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit of the Lord saith unto the churches. So in closing, I will give you a prediction. Persecution is coming, but Daddy said it last week. There is opportunity to stay it, to delay it. The only opportunity is revival. It will not come, like Paul said, unless there's a falling away. When the church starts militarizing instead of evangelizing, you will see the true judgment because that's when it came on Israel. That's when it came on Jerusalem, when the zealots overpowered the rabbis. Catherine Kuhlman in the, the 70s, 60s, 70s, had a great ministry. She actually has uh, the largest healing ministry in recorded history with over 2 million documented medical healings. She had a TV show at the time when TV was really just getting started. She, um, she really brought a lot of Catholics into Protestantism and, and started really the... Uh, charismatic Catholic movement and all. So she had a, a huge ministry. She Word of knowledge, healing, prophetic, teaching. She did many great things for God and for the kingdom, but yet most that come against her will come against her this day for one thing. They say she was a false prophet because she had one meeting where she told a bunch of young people at a Bible college, she said, I truly believe with all of my heart that this is the last youth generation before the return of the Lord. And they said, oh, but it didn't happen. She was a false prophet. First of all, Jesus tells us all to live that way, believing that it's coming in our lifetime. Second of all, I think she was right. I think that the, the generation of the 60s and the 70s that she was moving into, where the wickedness, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll, the falling away started, would have triggered judgment for this nation. And if it triggers for this nation, it triggers for the world. I believe the revival that God birthed through her stayed the judgment. She wasn't wrong. She was just willing to be the one that brought revival, that bought a little more time. And she faced hell for doing it. She was persecuted. She was hated, but she kept on pressing through. She was willing. God still needs someone. Will it be you? Revival is when the falling away is reversed. Because if something isn't actively growing, it's actively dying. Evangelize, preach, speak, pray, intercede, grow the kingdom. When the people, like wheat 
are sufficiently dry, sometimes it only takes one spark to start a fire that spreads like crazy. Just like in the time of Hezekiah, or Daniel, or Elijah, or Paul, or Wesley, or Kuhlman, or you, or me, he's still looking for one. So Jacob, you can go up. And we're going to pray today as we dismiss. We need some spiritual fathers and mothers who are willing. We need some young warriors who are willing to say, Lord, I'm going to walk in righteousness. I'm going to believe what you say. I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to teach it. I'm going to preach it. I'm going to be an example of it to protect my family, to protect my church, to protect my territory. The devil's coming to steal your territory. Your territory is your area of influence. It's the area that your righteousness should be preserving. The enemy does come to steal your territory. He does it by stealing your righteousness. It takes someone faithful and selfless to give up their want. For Catherine, it was stayed for a generation because she was willing to give up her desires, her plans, her logic, to literally take the example of Jesus and say, not my will, but thy will be done. I will be the one that intercedes for this lost people. God's looking for one, but you're going to have to give it up. He says, count the cost. Because to walk out in that role and then back up does more damage because it influences others to compromise. It's not okay. Be the one. My grandfather started this church, and he was that salt for this area. He stayed a lot of judgment. And we can talk about it. We're not going to go into it right now, but he stayed a lot of judgment. He kept preaching. Sometimes God will put you in positions that are not honorable. They're not the big stage. Go where he tells you to go because he knows where the salt is needed. Keep preserving. He needs light in the darkness. So the altars are open. God, this is a call to evangelism. Lord, we trust in you today. We give you praise that you are giving this commission and this word. And God, we know that it's not one we take lightly because we've got to count the costs because the enemy's going to rise up against it. And there are those who are going to be committed to break us down in it. But God, we say, just as Jesus gave us that example, as those who we read about in the scriptures and in the books of the martyrs and of those that we see throughout history, the great revival starters, that it takes a laying down of everything, our desires, our wants, our life, our plan, our ambition to pick up your mission to continue staying judgment for another generation. The judgment has already been given. This isn't something a million years away that we're marching to. This is something that's already set in motion that we're trying to prolong so that another generation can be brought into the kingdom before it's too late. Lord, if we can stay judgment on our own community, on our own state, on our own nation, or even on the world, because every time we fight a fight, it always ends up being bigger than we think it is. God, we are committed to say, use us 
use us. We know that we can't do it in our own strength, but we trust you to empower us by your spirit. Lord, we will cry out daily until we hear from you and we will obey you. We will walk in righteousness and we will abide in that prayer closet. We will dig our roots deep into the water of your Holy Spirit and hear from it so that you can correct us. So when we get out of alignment, we will know that we are drowning in this wrath, this sea, just like that came upon the children of disobedient, the unrighteous in the time of Noah. That's what Peter started sinking into when he put his eyes on the storm. But he cried out, Jesus, save me. And you pulled him back on track. You got him back in right standing on the water where he belonged. So God, we are crying out, get us back in right standing. Lord, we confess to you if there's any place that we know that we have strayed or wavered, but we come back into that place where we cry out, Jesus, by your grace, you can do it. We cry out for the atoning blood of Jesus to cleanse us of all wickedness, to come and fill us with your spirit that we can be led by it. God, that when we hear it, we will obey it unto righteousness. God, we thank you for the correction that produces that peaceable fruit of righteousness in us and we say God use us use us use us for your glory oh let us not be counted among the salt that has lost its savor that has given up its purpose in fact that verse comes immediately after the scripture when he says pray for those who persecute you and bless those who despitefully use you because what good is salt that has lost its savor God give us a heart that understands the commissions that you have given and the mission that you have put us all here on this earth to walk in that we are here to save the wicked. Thank you for listening to Heart of Worship Church podcast. For more podcasts, sermon videos, daily devotions, great new worship music, and more, be sure to download our app by searching Heart of Worship Church in the App Store or Google Play, or visit us online at heartofworshipchurch.com.